Section 16 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard. Chapter 16. Andrew Carnegie, Part 2. In 1891, Mr. Carnegie built the Carnegie Music Hall, at the corner of 57th Street and 7th Avenue in New York City, especially with Walter Damrosch and the Damrosch needs in mind. I have spoken in this hall a score or more of times, and I never stand upon its spacious platform but that I think with admiration of the ironmaster who had the courage to back with two million dollars his faith in the musical appreciation of New York City. It is good to know that the prophetic business instincts of Mr. Carnegie did not play him false. The various offices and studios connected with the splendid auditorium were quickly rented, and the investment has paid a fair return from the first. When it was built, it was the noblest auditorium in America. One of its chief benefits has been to show the people of America that such a building will pay. For one thing, it gave certain Western capitalists heart to erect the Fine Arts Building in Chicago. And now in a dozen cities of the United States there are great auditoriums where big events, musical and oratorical, bring the people together in a way that enlarges their spiritual horizon. Andrew Carnegie has ever had a passion for music. At Skibo Castle, the meals are announced by a bagpipe. Of course, I admit that whether the bagpipe is a musical instrument or not is a matter of argument. For just what constitutes music, my Irish friend, George Bernard Shaw, says is a point of view. Andrew Carnegie has given the musical interests of America an immense impulse. His presentation of pipe organs to churches, schools, and halls bids fair to revive the age of Sebastian Bach. Music helps us to get rid of our whims, prejudices, and petty notions, says Andrew Carnegie. The famous Pittsburgh Orchestra was first made possible by his encouragement, and without Carnegie we would have had no Damrosch, or at least a different Damrosch. From almost its inauguration, Mr. Carnegie has been president of the New York Oratorio, and for many years president of the Philharmonic Society. I was once present at a meeting of this society when a memorial volume of thanks from the Philharmonic was presented to Mr. Carnegie. The book contained the autographs of every member, working and honorary, of the association. Among the rest, I added my name to the list. Shortly after the presentation exercises, I met Mr. Carnegie on the stairs. He had the book under his arm. He graciously thanked me for adding my name, and spoke of how he prized my autograph. I replied somewhat loftily, "'Oh, don't mention it. It's nothing. It's nothing.' And then I felt how feeble my attempted pleasantry was. To Mr. Carnegie it was no joke. In fact, he was as tickled with his book of names, and its assurances of affection, as a girl who has just been presented by her lover with a volume of Ella Wheeler Wilcox's poems." then I saw how sensitive and tender is the heart of this most busy man, and how precious to him is human fellowship. This is a side of his nature that was new to me. Shakespeare says, sad is the lot of princes. They are pushed out and away from the common heart of humanity. Most of the men they meet want something, and as these folks want the thing they want awful bad, they never tell the prince the truth. In his presence they are like brass monkeys, or, more properly, like monkeys filled with monkey desires. They are shorn of all human attributes. 
pity the lot of the millionaire who has most incautiously allowed it to become known that he considers it a disgrace for any man to die rich five hundred letters a day are sent to andrew carnegie with suggestions concerning the best way in which he can escape disgrace the lazzaroni of america are as bad as the same tribe in italy only they play for bigger stakes the altruistic graft is as greedy as the grab of commercialism that much berated thing andrew carnegie cannot walk a block on broadway without being beset by would-be philanthropists who offer to pit their time against his money and thereby redeem the world from its sin and folly and these philanthropists do not realize for a moment that they are for the most part plain grabheimers from grabville and all of their pious plans for human betterment have their root in a selfish desire for personal aggrandizement mr carnegie's plan of giving only where the parties themselves also agree to give is a most wise and prudent move the town that accepts thirty thousand dollars for a library and agrees to raise three thousand a year to maintain it is neither pamperized patronized nor pauperized in ten years the town has put as much money into the venture as mr carnegie like nature andrew carnegie is a good deal of a schemer ask a town to start in and raise three thousand dollars a year for library purposes and the whole common council his honor the mayor and the board of education will throw a cataleptic fit but get them fired with the desire to secure thirty thousand dollars from mr carnegie and they make the promise to love honor and obey and maintain and strangely enough they do an action for non-support is a mighty disgraceful thing it is a wonderful bit of psychology this giving with an obligation and andrew carnegie is not only prince of ironmasters but he is a pedagogic prestidigitator and an artistic financial hypnotist not only does he give the library but he sets half the time hustling to maintain it the actual good comes not from the library building but from the human impulses set in motion the direction given to thousands of lives the library is merely an excuse a rallying point and around its swings and centers the best life of the town this working for a common cause dilutes the sectarian ego dissolves the village caste makes neighbor acquainted with neighbor and liberates a vast amount of human love which otherwise would remain hermetically sealed gossip is only the lack of a worthy theme a town library supplies topics for talk and the books there supply ten thousand more to accept a carnegie library means to take on an obligation achievement always stands for responsibility is it possible you are nervous asked the man of abraham lincoln when the orator was about to appear before an audience young man was the reply young man i have spoken well to have done well and then live up to your record is a serious matter responsibility is ballast a town that has taken on a carnegie library is one big committee intent on making the thing a success there is furniture needed pictures to secure statuary to select books to buy a carnegie library is usually an annex to the high school oh most clever cunning and canny carnegie did you know how great and wise was your scheme not at all any more than when you were a bobbin boy you could have guessed that one day you would own two hundred fifty million dollars in five per cent bonds you were as much astonished as anyone to see the perfection of your plan like all great men you sail under sealed orders as you worked the people by allowing them to work you for a gift 
which once secured turns out to be not a gift but a responsibility so has a supreme something been using you for a purpose you wist and what not of and the end it seems is not yet the only time i ever heard mr carnegie relate one of my pleasing stories was at a banquet of railroad officials some months ago in new york be it said as a matter of truth that mr carnegie gave me due credit although if he had not mentioned my name i would have been complimented to know that he had read the good stuff closely and pondered it well as brother authors you will please take notice that we observe the amenities so here's the story one lowering fall day i was walking along the road that leads from the village to my farm two miles out of town and as i trudged along i saw a horseshoe in the middle of the road now i never go by a horseshoe it means good luck so i picked up the horseshoe and instantly my psychic sky seemed to brighten and as i walked along with the horseshoe in my hand i saw another horseshoe in the road everything is coming my way i said i picked up the second horseshoe and then i had one in each hand i'd gone about a quarter of a mile when i saw two more horseshoes right together in the road it seems as if someone is working me i said i looked around and could see no one and anyway i accept the bluff i said to myself as i picked up the two horseshoes then i had two horseshoes in each hand but i wasn't four times as happy as when i had one i had gone about a quarter of a mile when i saw a pile of horseshoes in the road i've got em i fear i said to myself but i braced up and walking up to the pile of horseshoes i kicked into them they were horseshoes all right and just then i saw a man coming down the street picking up horseshoes in a bag i watched him with dazed eyes and swallowed hard as i tried to comprehend the meaning of this strange combination just then i saw the man's horse and wagon ahead he was a junk gentleman and had lost the tailboard out of his wagon and been strewing horseshoes all along the way he called to me and said hey old man dem's my horseshoes i know i said i've been picking them up for you and the moral is while it is true that one horseshoe brings you good luck a load of horseshoes is junk in the way of personal endowments mr carnegie has favored two individuals booker t washington and luther burbank and so far as i know these are the only men in america who should be endowed even the closest search as well as careful scrutiny in the mirror fails to find anyone else whom it would be wise or safe to make immune from the struggle to make a man secure against the exigencies of life is to kill his ambition and destroy his incentive to transform a man into a jellyfish give him a fixed allowance regardless of what he does this truth also applies to women women will never be free until they are economically free the fifteen million dollars which mr carnegie has given for a pension fund for superannuated college professors is quite another thing from pensioning a man so he will be free to work out his ideal the only people who have ideals are those in the fight but even this beneficent pension fund for teachers turned out to grass requires the most delicate and skilful handling several instances have already arisen where colleges have retired men well able to work in order that these men might secure pensions and the college could put in younger men at half price there has even been a suspicion that the pensioner divvied with the college to supply an incentive or temptation for a man in middle life to quit work in order that he may secure a pension is a danger which the donor mildly anticipated but which he finds it very hard to guard against what is middle life ah it depends upon the man some men are young at seventy and professor Momsen at eighty 
was at the very height of his power. Some teachers want to retire. Others don't. Nature knows nothing of pensions. Let each man be paid for his labor, and let him understand that economy of expenditure is the true and only insurance against want in old age. The pensioning of the youth is really more dangerous than to pension age. The youth should ask for nothing but opportunity. To make him immune from work and economy is to supply him a ticket, one way to Mattia one. In order to educate a boy for life, we should not lift him out of life. The training for life should slide into life at an unknown and unrecognizable point. The boy born into poverty, who fetches in wood for his mother and goes after the cows, has already entered upon a career. His brown bare feet are carrying messages, and his hands are taking on the habit of helpfulness. He is getting under the burden, and such a one will never be a parasite on society. In East Aurora there used to live a noted horseman. He bred, raised, trained, and drove several trotters that made world's records. Then, behold, another man comes on the scene, and a good man, too, and says, "'Go to. I will raise and train horses that will go so fast that Pa Hamlin's horses will only do for the plow.' So he built a covered and enclosed track a mile around. It cost nearly a hundred thousand dollars. And here the wise one was to train his colts all winter, while the other man's horses ran barefoot, and with long woolly coats plowed through the snowdrifts waiting for spring to come with chirrup of birds and good roads. Result, the man with the covered track had his horses fit in April. But in July and August, when the races began, they had gone past. Moreover, it was discovered that horses trained on the covered track could not be raced with safety on an open course. The roofed track had shut the horse in, giving him a feeling of protection and safety. But when he got on an open track, the sun, the sky, the crowds, the moving vehicles sent him into a nervous dance. A bird flying overhead would stampede him. He lost his head and wore out his nerve. But the horses that had been woolly in February grew sleek in May, and being trained in the open grew used to the sights, and for them every day was a race day. In August they were hard and cool and level-headed, and always had one link left when called upon in the home stretch. The covered track was all right in theory, but false in practice. It ruined a thousand colts, and never produced a single trotter. Don't train either horses or children indoors and out of season, and expect a world-beater. Next, make your teaching and training life, not an indoor make-believe. The school that approximates life will be the school whose pupils make records. What is needed now is a line of colleges in the North that will do for white folks what Booker T. Washington does for the colored. And the reason we do not have such schools is because we have not yet evolved men big enough as teachers to couple business and books. The men who make money can't teach, and those who can teach can't make money. The man of the future will do both. Tuskegee has no servants, no menials, and employs no laborers. The work of housing and feeding 2,000 persons is all student labor. This is a great achievement, but the university that is to come will go beyond Tuskegee in this. It will supply commodities to supply to the world what the world wants. Three or four hours of manual labor a day will not harm either the body or the brain of a growing youth. On the other hand, such a course will give steadiness to life. This labor will be paid for, so the student will be independent of all outside help at all times. This will make for manhood and self-reliance. Mr. Carnegie's success, like that of every master businessman, 
has turned on his selection of men. He has always been on the lookout for young men who could carry the message. His success proves his ability to judge humanity. Whenever he was sure he had the genuine article, he would tender the young man an interest in the business, often a percentage on sales or output. This was the plan of Marshall Field. By this method he transformed a good man into a master, and bound the man to him in a way that no outside influence could lend a lure. The only disadvantage in this, Mr. Carnegie says, is that when the young man becomes a millionaire, you may have him for a competitor. But even with this risk, it is much wiser than to try to carry all the burden yourself. A multimillionaire should raise a goodly brood of millionaires, and, of necessity, does. Wise is the man who sees to it that he has an understudy. Once upon a time, along in the 80s, Mr. Carnegie got somewhat overworked and took a trip to Europe. Just before going, he went around and bade goodbye to each of the big boys who ran the mills. One of these was Captain William Jones, more familiarly known to fame as plain Bill Jones. Bill, said Mr. Carnegie, I'm a bit weary, and I feel I must get away, and the only place for me to go is Europe. I have to place an ocean between me and this mighty hum of industry before I can get rest. And do you know, Bill, no matter how oppressed I am, just as soon as I round Sandy Hook and get out of sight of land, I get perfect relief. And Bill answered, And, oh, Lord, just think of the relief we all get. And everybody roared, Andy loudest of all. And the last thing that Andy did before sailing was to raise Bill's salary, just $10,000 a year. Mr. Carnegie has always liked men who are not afraid of him. And when one of his workers could convince him that he, the worker, knew more about some particular phase of the business than Mr. Carnegie, that man was richly rewarded. Mr. Carnegie has ever been on friendly terms with his men. And had he been in America when the homestead labor trouble arose, there would have been no strike. He is firm when he should be, but he is always friendly. He is wise enough and big enough to give in a point. Like Lincoln, he likes to let people have their own way. He manages them, if need be, by indirection, rather than by formal edict, order, and injunction. Barbaric folk prize gold and make much use of silver, but the consumption of iron is the badge of civilization. Iron rails, iron steamboats, iron buildings. And who was there thirty years ago who foresaw the modern skyscraper? Any more than a hundred years ago, men foretold the iron steamship. The business of Andrew Carnegie has been to couple the iron mines of Lake Superior with the coal fields of Pennsylvania, and to load the ore at Duluth and transport it to Pittsburgh, a thousand miles away, and transform it into steel rails, was a matter of ten days. When the Carnegie Steel Company was reconstructed in 1900, it was with no intention of selling out. It was the biggest, best-organized business concern in America, with possibly one exception. Its capital was $100 million. It owned the Homestead, the Edgar Thompson, and the Duquesne Mills. Besides these, it owned seven other, smaller mills. It owned thousands of acres of ore land in the Lake Superior country. It owned a line of iron steamships that carried the ore to Pittsburgh railroad connections. It owned the railroads that brought the ore from the mines to the docks, and it owned the docks. It owned vast coal mines in Pennsylvania, and it owned a controlling interest in the Connellville Coke Ovens, whence five miles of freight cars in fair times were daily sent to the mills, loaded with coke. These properties were practically owned by Mr. Carnegie personally, and his was the controlling hand. He had a daily report from every mill, which in a few lines told just what the concern was doing. There was also a daily report from each branch office, and a report from the head cashier, where one line of figures presaged the financial weather. 
when the billion dollar trust the united states steel corporation was formed mr carnegie sold his interests in the carnegie plants to the new concern for two hundred fifty million dollars and took his pay in five per cent bonds it was the biggest and cleanest clean-up ever consummated in the business world as a financial getaway it has no rival in history there were many wise ones who said oh he will foreclose and have the works back in a few years but not so the united states steel corporation has made money and is making money because it is being managed by men who for the most part were trained by carnegie in the financial way they should go as far as money is concerned mr carnegie could have made much more by staying in business than by selling out but andrew carnegie quit one job to take up a harder one to die a millionaire will yet be a disgrace he said to give away money is easy but to give it away wisely so it will benefit the world for generations to come is a most difficult and exacting task a quarter of the thousand million in steel bonds did not constitute mr carnegie's whole wealth he had several little investments outside of that in fact that clever saying put all your eggs in one basket is exoteric not esoteric what mr carnegie really meant was if you are only big enough to watch one basket to have two were folly mr carnegie himself has always had his eggs in a dozen or so baskets but he never has had any more baskets than he could watch his baskets were usually coupled together like the grasshopper which pumps several oil wells with one engine wealth is good for those who can use it power the same but when you cease to manage a thing and the thing begins to manage you it may eat you up in east aurora there used to be a good friend of mine who had a peanut stand at the station the business flourished and someone advised my friend that he should put in popcorn as a sideline he did so and got nervous prostration you see he was a peanut man and when he got outside of his specialty he was lost one realizes the herculean task of dying poor which confronts mr carnegie when you think that he is worth say five hundred million dollars this is invested so that it brings an income of five per cent or twenty five million dollars a year so far mr carnegie has been barely able to give away his income to say nothing of the principal his total benefactions up to the present time amount to about two hundred millions he has nearly worked the territory with libraries you can't give two libraries to a town except in the big cities people protest and will not have them there is a limit to pipe organs heroes are so plentiful that it is more or less absurd to distinguish them with medals dumferline is almost done for by a liberality that would damn any american town to give faster than people grow is to run the grave risk of arresting development a benefaction must bestow a benefit give to most people and they will quit work and get a job with george arliss where the devil still finds mischief for idle hands to do to relieve the average man from work would simply increase the trade in cigarettes cocaine bromide and strong drink and supply candidates for sing-sing to make a vast fortune and then lose the tailboard out of your hearse and dump your wealth on a lazy world merely causes the growler to circulate rapidly and so we sympathize with andrew carnegie in his endeavor to live up to his dictum to die poor and yet not pauperize the world by his wealth but let us not despond the man is only seventy-eight his eyes are bright his teeth are firm his form is erect his limbs are agile and his brain is at its best most hopeful sign of all he can laugh he can even laugh at himself if this counts for anything at all it means sanity and length of days end of section sixteen recorded by olivia